Half-Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into horror movies curated by the population of items available at the local Half-Price bookstore. And today we'll be looking at Trick or Treat. Excuse me, not Trick or Treat. Trick or Treat. That's actually a distinction in the horror movie community. This is the 2007 movie written and directed by Michael Doherty. He was one of the writers on the X-Men movies. He was also the director of Krampus and Godzilla, King of the Monsters. This is based on an animated short he did about a decade previous, which is on the DVD. It's about a mysterious little trick-or-treater who is going around trick-or-treating and is quartered in an alley by a big monstrous child murderer and who winds up basically killing him and taking him home in his Halloween sack of toys. It's pretty much about what you'd expect, you know. But it's cute, for a given value of cute. It's also produced by Brian Singer, which is somewhat depressing, and some of you may feel that you need to boycott the movie as a result. I'm going to be talking about the movie in ways that may make that easier for you, but if you do want to watch it, getting it used like I did is a good way to make sure that no money goes back to Brian Singer, which is good because by all accounts he's a complete garbage human being. The movie stars Dylan Baker, who among other things was Kurt Connors in the first three Spider-Man movies, the one who never got the chance to become the Lizard, as Principal Stephen Wilkins, stars Anna Paquin, the Piano, True Blood, and of course Rogue in the X-Men movies, as Laurie, Lauren Lee Smith as Danielle, Rochelle Eights as Maria, Monica Delane as Janet, Brian Cox, who has a vast filmography that includes the first portrayal of Hannibal Lecter, roles in Rob Roy and Braveheart, an appearance in The Ring, villain roles in X2, basically he's been around for ages, as Mr. Krieg, Tamo Pennicut uh, from Battlestar Galactica and Dollhouse as Henry, Leslie Bibb as Emma, Britt McKillop as Macy, Jean-Luc Bilodeau as Schrader, Isabelle Deleuze as Sarah, Alberto Gisi as Chip, Sam Todd as Rhonda, and Quinn Lord as Sam. As an anthology, it's got a big, big cast. A lot of them are child actors. You know, there's there's not a ton of roles for some of these people, but they all do very well in their performances. They have a naturalistic, comfortable familiarity with the kind of material, and, and they execute it in a believable way. The film begins with a cold open. There's a brief snippet from an old short about trick-or-treating safety, and then we see Emma and Henry returning from a night on the town, at the Halloween festivities for Warren Valley, Ohio. This is presumably a nod to Warren Comics, the publishers of the anthology comic Creepy and Vampirella. And I think this scene will pretty much decide whether you're on board with the movie or not. Emma is unhappy with her costume. She's wearing this sort of boxy 50s sci-fi robot look that's basically a cardboard box covered in foil and some dryer hose uh, for the arms. Uh, it was clearly chosen to pair with Henry's retro Flash Gordon costume, which looks really sharp, I gotta say. It's very authentic, and it's neat that it's in black and white. He didn't use any colors, so it gives him the feel of a black and white serial character. She does not want to leave the lit jack-o'-lantern on the sidewalk all night, and she'd like to take down the extremely elaborate Halloween decorations that Henry put up in her yard before her mom arrives tomorrow, instead of watching porn with her boyfriend or husband or whatever they are together, uh, who she does not trust to clean up the decorations in the morning like he says he will. 
When he gets a sulky look on his face about being challenged, she lets him go watch porn on his own while she cleans up the yard. She sees a small child in a costume that looks a bit like a scarecrow in a onesie uh, watching her. The This is Sam, uh, the kind of horror host role on this, and he is genuinely iconic from the first shot. The colors are perfect. The costume is simple, iconic, very memorable. It is a perfect poster-ready horror icon, and I think easily 80% of the reason for this movie's success. Um, and, you know, he subsequently kills her. Now, the clear intent of this scene is to imply, in the old tradition of EC Comics, that Emma is getting her poetic comeuppance for disrespecting the Halloween traditions and nagging her husband and pointing out his flaws and not giving him enough sex. And although they don't explicitly say it, probably also for choosing a boxy, unattractive robot costume instead of going for a Dale Arden, sexy alien babe look to complement his Flash Gordon costume. And if that appeals to you, you're probably going to be very much on board with this movie. If, on the other hand, you think that it's really rude to drag your significant other into doing something they don't want to do just because you really like it, that it's extremely inconsiderate to go overboard on your Halloween decorations and then make them do all the work of cleaning it up, that it's a major red flag in a relationship to get sulky and whiny when you don't get the sex you want from your girlfriend, or wife again, and that only a jackass would go watch porn and leave their significant other to do all of the work, and it's Henry who should have gotten a little poetic justice, you're probably not going to love this movie. Spoiler alert, I did not love this movie. We should probably go a bit into the EC tradition here. Uh, EC Comics, they are famous for being the folks who did Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, uh, True Crime, I believe, was one of their weird suspense stories. They had... A, a lucrative line of business in the 50s doing horror and crime and science fiction comics. And usually the Tales from the Crypt and similar series all had that poetic justice suffusing them. There would be someone who did something very bad, they seemingly got away with it, and then supernatural forces would intervene to give them the rough justice that they deserved for their acts. Usually this was murder. They had a lot of philandering husbands, philandering wives who would kill their spouses and run off with their affairs and be caught and killed for it, usually by the zombies of said spouses. There would be, you know, homicidal murderers who got what they deserved. There would be all sorts of various figures who, for whatever reason, were punished in a way that they couldn't be punished in life. And it was an enforcement of a moral order in a sense. The the understanding that although the world is not a safe place and not a happy place, that ultimately there is justice to it. And this is trying to borrow the sensibilities of that, but as you will see, the moral order of this universe is people who like Halloween are good and will be protected and or avenged. People who don't will be punished and or killed. It's a very, very odd poetic justice to this universe, and it didn't sit well with me. In any event, we now go into the credit sequence, which is a lovely montage of panels from a comic book adaptation of the movie, which did get made and released, talking about how Halloween is a night of sacred traditions you mess with at your peril. There's all sorts of shots of things we will see later in the movie taken out of context, like Little Sam, 
like Mr. Krieg holding a shotgun, all of them saying, you know, as I say, beware of disrespecting Halloween. This fades out into a teenage boy who's walking down the street out of costume and dragging a bag of candy on the ground behind him, and you can already tell just from the fact that he's a teenager who's out of costume that he is not respecting Halloween. TM. And this is taking place at a point in time some few hours before Emma met her end. Now, one of the things I genuinely love about this movie, it's very clever, is that rather than adhering to the strict framing sequence, story, framing sequence, story, framing sequence structure that you'll get in a lot of horror anthology movies, this is very organic. It blends them together somewhat like the uh, short uh Simpsons episode 22 short films about Springfield, where sometimes you'll see the beginning of a story and then it'll go a different direction into a full other story and then it will come back to those characters for the middle of their story before veering off to somebody else yet again. And they interweave together very naturally. And it's very, very nice. And it, it allows the stories to develop at a pace that suits them. Some of these stories are short and need to be delivered self-contained. Some of them need more setup. They need a chance to breathe, to feel like these are events that are happening over the course of an entire night. It works very well. It's not predictable either, which is also very nice. It's, it's a good structure. I will freely give this movie that. We then cut to a costume store where four women, Lori, Danielle, Janet and Maria are all trying on revealing costumes while exchanging tons of innuendo as a little boy tries to peek into their dressing rooms. They emerge dressed as fairy tale characters with Lori embarrassed to be stuck in the Little Red Riding Hood costume. Now I will say this, I don't want to spoil right away, but this will spoil it, but this is a scene that plays a lot better on repeated viewings but it does very blatantly play on the tropes of slut-shaming, virginal survivors, all sorts of things that other horror movies play with unironically, and it's kind of trying to have its cake and eat it too here. Uh, you're seeing a scene that you will come to understand in another context, but at the beginning you are very much expected to be rooting for uh, virginal lori and against the other three women who are really, really enthusiastic about, at least apparently, casual sex with strangers. Basically, Janet and Maria are openly mocking Lori for being a virgin and not using her sexual wiles to get men to come out to their Halloween party in the forest, and Danielle is showing sincere concern that her sister doesn't seem interested in that kind of activity. She shows Lori how it's done by picking up the checkout guy as they pay for their costumes, and Janet and Maria do the same a few minutes later with a couple of cameramen filming the Halloween festivities for the local news. Getting back to the teenage boy, Charlie, he smashes a bunch of pumpkins, goes to the high school principal's house, and sees that there's an honor system candy bowl out because the principal is in line getting further candy supplies, and he just empties out the bowl into his bag, but bum bum bum, the principal sees him. Principal Wilkins sits him down with a couple of candy bars and gives him a lecture about how important it is to respect Halloween's traditions just because this is a movie that really wants to make it clear to you that the theme is Halloween is a really great holiday and everyone should be respecting the Halloween traditions. And he then smirks as Charlie pukes his guts up and dies because the most important tradition of all is... Always check your candy. Which feels like a nice conclusion, but then the scene just sort of keeps on going. 
Principal Wilkins drags the body into his house and is trying to hide it. All of a sudden he gets a knock on the door and he's got trick-or-treaters and it's Macy and Sarah and Chip and they're all asking for candy and they're also asking for the principal's jack-o'-lantern as part of a scavenger hunt. And he says sure and he gives them candy and then another little boy, Sam, the murder child, shows up and asks for, well, non-verbally asks for candy and he gets it too. And then, you know, Principal Wilkins takes the body out to the backyard and buries it. And then the scene just sort of keeps on going after that. He's interrupted by his loud, cheerfully brash son who wants to carve a jack-o'-lantern. He's interrupted by the neighbor's nosy dog. He's interrupted by the neighbor himself, who is Mr. Krieg, all the while engaging in this farcical business of nearly getting caught burying Charlie's corpse. It's a scene that tracks on uncomfortably long, and it doesn't really fit into the classic E.C. traditions that the film borrows from. Wilkins should be getting his poetic comeuppance for murdering a child, but instead he just sort of gets into these wacky, sad-sack, Norman Krasner-style antics. All together now. <sighs> oh, and we'll revisit this scene later from Krieg's point of view, which is important to mention because Wilkins completely blows him off when Krieg, in, in turn, looks like something he's having trouble with something that's invaded his house. Wilkins goes back inside, and the movie hints strongly at the idea that he might be getting ready to kill his own child for being too nosy and too obnoxiously twee, but instead they work together to carve up Charlie's head, the jack-o'-lantern that the kid was talking about earlier. Because the kid is a murderer too. And okay, yeah, that, that is a little bit like an EC Comics ending, I confess. Meanwhile, Macy, Chip, and Sarah meet up with their friend Schrader, who's also been collecting pumpkins for this scavenger hunt, and they go to the house of a local girl, Rhonda, who is called several ableist slurs over the course of the movie, but who is portrayed more or less in the stereotypical manner Hollywood reserves for people on the autism spectrum, there is nothing about this portrayal that's good. It's very much a stereotype. That's not the fault of the actress I want to stress. That is entirely the fault of the screenplay and the director. But this is a hugely ableist movie in a very disturbing way. She carves pumpkins as a hobby, as part of her deep and abiding love for Samhain and its traditions. And Schrader asks her if they can use some of them in a ritual they plan to perform. This is the beginning of a whole plot thread that uses non-neurotypical individuals pretty much for added transgressive shock value and nothing more. And I want to stress, it's really, really gross. This is one of the big reasons why I just am not comfortable with this movie. If it was not, if it was defying stereotypes, if it was in any way using this as representation, I would be on board with it, but it is really just leaning hard into Hollywood stock depictions of non-neurotypical people for added spookiness, and it's very tasteless and exploitative. We cut back to the town Halloween party at that point, where a mur woman is murdered by an apparently real vampire, which everyone, including Henry and Emma, who is still alive at this point, think is a stunt. She collapses in front of a crowd of people and is left propped up next to some empty beer cans. We cut back to Macy and her gang, who are taking the pumpkins to the local quarry, where they plan to offer them to some local children who died 30 years ago. Rhonda is now tagging along, and Macy retells the full story in flashbacks. Apparently, these were all children with special needs whose parents hated them for their non-neurotypical status, because, again, non-neurotypical individuals are here primarily to make a spooky story spookier by adding transgressive shock value and playing to gross stereotypes, 
and who paid the bus driver to quote-unquote accidentally send the bus crashing into the quarry. He does, but winds up going over the edge with them and is never seen again, although we, the audience, see that he does escape. Back in the present, the kids take the elevator down to the quarry, splitting up into two groups, ostensibly because it's a small elevator. Macy, Sarah, and Schrader go down first and instruct Chip and Rhonda to follow once the elevator comes back up to the top. Lori, meanwhile, is still looking for a date for the party in the woods. Her sister arranges a man for her, albeit one that's not conventionally attractive, and Lori decides to give up her searching and go meet him. But little does she know, she's attracted to the attention of the vampire. Cutting back to the school children, Chip and Rhonda head down the elevator, but something terrible has happened to the first group. They've disappeared in the fog. Rhonda goes to investigate and finds nothing but scattered remains of their costumes floating in the quarry. Then the zombies of the murdered kids erupt from the muck. They've killed the first group. They get Chip. They chase Rhonda. Rhonda loses her glasses. She can't see. She stumbles and hits her head on a rock. And it turns out the zombies were just the other kids. It was all a cruel prank. A ludicrously elaborate cruel prank at that, one that must have involved hours of setup and several quick costume changes, and apparently had no endgame beyond scare the teenage girl with autism. It's pointlessly cruel and exists solely to make everyone but Rhonda, the only Halloween true believer, less sympathetic so that when the real zombies emerge from the muck less than a minute later, we're generally fine with everyone but Rhonda dying while she takes the elevator and leaves them to their fate. And this does a kind of approach an EC mentality, what with the people who play the pranks getting murdered for their cruelty, but it's less, excuse me, the real spirit of Halloween doesn't involve bullying, and more, eh, true Halloween fans are protected by a wide variety of malevolent spirits who will give their tormentors their comeuppance. There's this nasty strain of tribalism running through this film, the idea that horror fans are the we, and that non-horror fans just don't get it, just don't deserve it, just don't deserve compassion because they don't get it, and it ruins the fun of a lot of sequences that should have been very enjoyable. Cutting back to Lori, she heads through the woods to the party and is ambushed by the vampire, who makes a joke about her little red riding costume just before biting her. We cut back to the party, the, all the young women are partying, all of the men are drunk and passed out, and all of a sudden this body comes hurtling into the clearing and drops through the trees into the ground. It's dressed in a red cloak. But, when they turn it over, it's the vampire. Who turns out to be Principal Wilkins wearing a mask and fake fangs. I didn't think that was really necessary, and also I'm generally of the belief, barring a few notable exceptions, that if your twist is that the vampire is just a normal dude, it's automatically and inherently less interesting than your twist being in that a normal dude is really a vampire. Uh, Lori saunters into the clearing, more or less unharmed, and the young women proceed to turn into werewolves. Now, this is a genuinely inventive and spooky transformation sequence. They don't just grow hair, they literally shred off their own skins to reveal the werewolf beneath. It is really cool. It is, you know, somewhat gross, but in a good kind of gross. It's gory and spectacular. It's wonderful. And then, of course, they all devour their dates, who were not there to be, you know, had sex with at all. They were there to be literally eaten. Lori straddles Wilkins, looks down at him, and says, My, my, what big eyes you have, right before she feasts. 
At the very least, it's a scene that makes you understand why they were chuckling at her costume earlier. We then jump back in time again to Krieg's house, where he is a grouchy grump who threatens off trick-or-treaters with his dog that he's costumed with scary glowing eyes. Honestly, the dog looks like a total sweetie. He's just all adorable and he cuddles and frankly, the dog is the best character. After scaring off the trick-or-treaters, he goes back inside and finally gets around to burning the evidence that he killed a school bus full of children 30 years ago. I mean, I know I'm kind of a procrastinator myself, you know, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I'll get to paying the bills tomorrow, you know, oh, I guess I can, you know, do this podcasting a day later or the next afternoon, but I don't think I've ever gotten so bad that I've waited 30 years to dispose of the evidence that I murdered a dozen or so school children. I think I'm a little bit more on the ball than that. Um, he picks up the candy that the kids dropped. He tries taking a bite of it, doesn't really enjoy it, but he's just happy that he stole candy from children. He turns on the TV, looks for something to watch that isn't Halloween-related. He settles on an infomercial because even that's better than Halloween. In case you haven't gotten it yet, he hates Halloween. Have we mentioned yet that he's not a big fan of this movie's favorite holiday? Some kids egg his house. He goes out with a baseball bat to track them down. Instead of finding them, he hears Wilkins next door, and we pretty much get the exact same scene we got earlier, only from Krieg's side of the yard. It's a little tedious, to be honest. It doesn't add a whole lot to the movie. Uh, apart from the next part, which does add something, which is where he goes back inside. He hears a noise at the front door, and he discovers that someone has decorated his house with a host of jack-o'-lanterns. He's just about to smash them when the dog barks, warning him that someone, or something, has come in through the doggy door. The dog gives chase, and Krieg, taking down his shotgun from over the fireplace, goes to investigate. The dog barks some more, then whimpers before going silent. Now, I am choosing to believe that the dog was merely scared off and hiding, because frankly, it's not like the dog hates Halloween. The dog bears no moral culpability, and not to spoil, but Sam, the someone who has just broken in, is the spirit of Halloween, and should only be punishing people, and does in fact only punish people who are not properly Halloweenish. The dog even dressed up in costume. He went all out. It's not the dog's fault. Looking for the dog, Krieg searches room by room, eventually finding a novelty mummy hand in his bed that wiggles and wiggles and wiggles, and, oh yeah, also writing in blood all over his walls and ceiling that says, trick or treat, give me something good to eat, and a jack-o'-lantern on his nightstand that suddenly explodes into flames. Again, not saying I know where he got the blood from, I'm just assuming it's not the dog period. Just then, as soon as he reads the writing, he's attacked by little Sam, who slashes his ankle with a candy bar that has a razor blade in it. That is a wonderful touch. It's a very fitting weapon for a kid who constantly trick-or-treats. You assume that he's got a whole host of items that he's gathered from his Halloween wanderings every year, little, you know, bits and bobs, toothbrushes and pencils, and he has repurposed the urban legend that is supposed to be dangerous for kids Halloween trick-or-treating into his weapon. That is that is a grace note on this movie, I will say that. Uh, Sam runs when Krieg shoots at him, but he's booby-trapped the stairs with little round hard candies and more razor blades and shards of broken glass, and really, this paints a pretty dark picture of grown-ups. I mean, I always assumed that was an urban legend, but no, Sam has like an entire collection of things that people use to try to murder kids. 
Krieg tries to call Wilkins for help, but this is the scene we saw before, and this actually does make more sense now and is a worthwhile addition because Wilkins just blows him off and goes back inside. Krieg pulls off Sam's mask to reveal... I, I really did not expect that they would do a reveal of what was under the mask. It just felt like one of those mysteries you are not allowed to see. But he rips off the mask, and underneath he's got this huge pumpkin for a head with this sort of skeletal face, not exactly carved into it, more growing out of it. It's it's a very effective look, It's very uh, uh, and a very well-done reveal. Um, they struggle, and Krieg manages to shoot him. Pumpkin guts spray from the wounds, and Sam goes flying back because he does have the mass of a small child. And Krieg unloads a few more shots, blowing off Sam's hand entirely before trying to call the police. But before he can say more than a few words, the dismembered hand disconnects the phone line and stabs Krieg again before returning to Sam with the mask in tow and reattaching itself. Because Sam is the living spirit of Halloween and can't be killed. Um, it's my headcanon that this was what was summoned by the ritual performed in Halloween Season of the Witch. Wounded and out of ammo, Krieg crawls away as Sam bites a lollipop into the shape of a shiv. He s Krieg spills candy from the bag he stole all over himself in his desperate attempts to find a weapon. He grabs a bottle of whiskey, he smashes it to break it so that he can slash at Sam, but Sam just grabs him by the wrist and breaks his arm, and then stabs the shift down into a candy bar, which he takes and leaves because it's trick-or-treat and he wanted something good to eat. All he needed was a ritual sacrifice of candy to propitiate him. See? Even grouchy grumps can get into the Halloween spirit if the alternative is a gruesome and agonizing death. <laughs> We later see a bandage Krieg giving kids their treats. He apparently got to the ER and back remarkably quickly. Well across the street, Rhonda, on her way back from the zombie attack, is nearly hit by the werewolves in their car right in front of Henry and Emma's house, which is the opening shot of the movie, although at that point all we see is the wagon and the car. We don't see who's carrying it or driving it. Sam gives Krieg a warning look, reminding him to keep to Halloween traditions or else, and we see Emma earning her personal or else as Sam turns to watch her and the cycle closes. But of course, there's one last bit of unfinished business. Krieg gets one last group of trick-or-treaters, the zombies of the children he killed, and they're finally getting their revenge 30 years later. Which is probably the most easy note to end the movie on, and the only one who feels genuinely like the kind of poetic justice that the film was aiming for all along. Now, will I keep this DVD? No. While I love the aesthetic of Sam himself, he's a beautiful piece of costume design, and the structure of the film is very cleverly done, it feels very mean-spirited and nasty in ways that most of this kind of movie don't. I just don't enjoy that the moral of the story is basically be like we in the tribe and not like the muggles slash mundane slash not we who don't get into the Halloween spirit, or you deserve nothing but suffering, and I don't see myself watching it again. Even putting it in for the second time for my show notes felt a bit like a chore, and as you can tell from the extremely brief length of this podcast, there's not much to it. It's just very short, simple tales told in a clever way, but there's just not much there there when you get right down to it, and what there is I didn't like. So I'm aware that this is probably going to be an unpopular opinion for horror fans. I know this one is greatly beloved, but 
wasn't my cup of tea, sorry. But thankfully, now that I'm done with it, I get to take another road trip to Camp Crystal Lake and meet little Jason, all grown up. That's right, we're talking Friday the 13th, part two next time. See you then.